Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and worldwide. Uh, this is Peter Mandelson, uh, Chair of Global Council, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by uh, two guests, uh, Marco Aldera. Uh, Marco is CEO of SNAM, Europe's biggest gas distribution uh, system uh, operator. I first met Marco when he was a top talent at uh, ENI, and also Al Cook, uh, who leads on global strategy and business development at Equinor. I first met Al when he was a rising star at BP. And for both of them, the next phase of their careers is going to be dominated by the energy transition. It's going to be defined by the decarbonization of the energy sector and the wider economy. So they are, in effect, the leaders of the decarbonization uh, generation. Today, I want to discuss with them how they see the prospects for the sector uh, in the decade ahead. And our starting point, inevitably, is the COVID crisis. Energy has been in the front line of its economic impacts, obviously big operational challenges in keeping energy flowing, but also some really big numbers on the impact on energy demand. The IEA published some figures a couple of weeks ago, reporting that countries in full lockdown were using 25% less energy. Uh, in all, they suggest the impact on energy is going to be sevenfold greater uh, than that of the financial crisis. And with this, the IEA is also predicting that we're going to see a very big slump this year in investment uh, in the sector. Now, Amenigilda Bocabella is uh, Global Council's uh, energy practice lead. Uh, she operates from our Brussels uh, office. She's just published a blog uh, arguing uh, that uh, the COVID crisis uh, is going to accelerate the pace of decarbonization. So let's turn first of all to you and ask you just to set out very briefly that case. And then I'm going to take that to our two guests. Amanda Gilda, you, you kick off. Thank you, Peter. Of course, COVID-19, as you said, has brought, brought our entire lifestyle to a grinding halt. I mean, the irony is that at least for many of us, while we were uh, inside our homes, we were looking up at our windows of our, of our living rooms, our kitchens and our bedrooms and saw the sun shining through and, and the skies were blue. But of course, that was one of the hottest months of May that we've ever experienced. Many people were naturally drawing the link between this grinding halt and emissions re reductions. Of course, there is also the economic impact, which will be fatal for many businesses and companies. If you look back at the start of the GSC, GFC, we saw economies crash, where some sectors took really heavy hits and entire industries were shaken up. But the fallout um, certainly hit emissions reductions efforts. Many of the environmental initiatives, which were in their infancy a decade ago, were stopped. Uh, and though we've seen a significant drop in, though we saw back then a significant drop in emissions, that was quickly made up in growth. I think this time it's different. There's no going back. We saw oil, oil prices drop to their lowest and though they've returned to about $40 a barrel, that price is 
essentially just at production cost. We'll discuss, of course, the, the, um, the, whether or not we've passed peak oil demand uh, later. But the demand in electricity, as you said, Peter, has also changed, as most of us were in, in our homes. And of course, the grids, the electricity grids reacted differently. Um, the UK grid, for example, didn't take power generated from coal for two months. Uh, and this is certainly fast-tracked scheduled coal-fired power station closures. Germany has also been able to, to meet a lot of its energy demand from renewables without being plagued by flexibility issues, which were always predicted. Um, and gas markets have also been going through quite a large amount of volatility. This has meant that policymakers have to be persuaded by, this has meant that policymakers no longer have to be persuaded by the argument for decarbonisation. And in fact, the additional debt that we're going to have to accumulate um, to respond to the, the financial crisis uh, shouldn't be matched by additional emissions. Um, the uh, International Renewable Energy Agency has said that emissions will need to be cut by at least 70% compared to today to reach the two degree target in the Paris Agreement. The cost of the energy transition obviously is something that we've been discussing, especially at the European level, uh, quite significantly. And here I've put up two slides of, of what the actual cost of net zero could look like. The cumulative investment required for net zero is about 160 trillion euros. Um, and the idea is that this would, a majority of this would have to go towards, or 80% of this, sorry, would have to go towards investments in renewables, increased grid flexibility, increased uh, use in um, energy efficiency, upgrading of power grids, and of course, the end use of electrification. Um, but then when you look at, when, you, when you're starting to think about this, and at the EU level, we've been unpacking this uh, quite significantly, the benefits of investments compared to, um, uh, the benefits of the investment compared to the cost is quite significant. If you look at the cost of what net zero will, what net zero will actually cost our economies, uh, the benefits, uh, the, the high projected savings are four to five times greater than that, which is also kind of, the pinnacle incentive for um, for why we should be looking to come back from COVID-19 in, in essentially the greenest way possible and why we may have in fact passed the tipping point. The Commission Vice President Franz Timmermans has warned against being short-sighted and propping up companies and industries and sectors that aren't necessarily future-proof. The United Kingdom um, has legislated already for net zero, as has France, and the EU has legislation that's in the European Parliament at the moment. The European Commission has proposed quite a significant funding boost, um, where one quarter of the funding is earmarked for emissions reductions, and shovel-ready projects should really be prioritised. Um, climate action and emissions reductions shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be undermined because of this crisis. And this obviously allows the, the pathway to be open for, for other technologies that we've been looking at, like hydrogen, um, scaling up hydrogen, which we're going to see a hydrogen strategy, which should be released uh, in, the, in the coming months by the European Union. Germany yesterday released their own hydrogen strategy. And all of these are obviously extremely significant for, for the future of, of energy, not just here in the European Union, not in the United Kingdom, but of course, across the globe. 
Clean energy investments in Europe and the UK will be easier to scale up at this point in time because the, the scaffolding to, to do so is firmly in place. Whether we've passed the tipping point or not, I guess it doesn't really matter, but we should certainly be seeing this as an opportunity to accelerate towards net zero. Peter, um, I think this is a great point for you to bring up with our guests. Thank you very much indeed. Um, so the question is, should we be accelerating the pace of decarbonisation and what we and, and would like to do that? The question is, are we in the wake of COVID or are we equally likely to return uh, to a carbon rich reality with hydrocarbons accounting for close to 80% of our energy? Al, what's your view? Well, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Emily Gilda. Um, I, I think it's uh, easy in these circumstances to overestimate the short-term effects and, and underestimate the long-term effects. So what we've seen, as, as Emma Gilda pointed out, is actually at one point uh, global oil demand went down from its normal 100 million barrels a day down to 70 million barrels a day. So a reduction of 30% at the depth of the coronavirus lockdown. But what we've seen since then is the beginnings of a recovery, and China is now up at 90% of its demand of its normal uh, demand levels, and we're seeing some strange effects as well. Over the last um, 24 hours in Norway, for instance, uh, the use of cars was up 28% on uh, normal levels, and the use of public transport down 16% on normal levels, and that, of course, is because people fear the use of public transport at the moment. So our sense is that in the, in the short term, uh, we expect um, oil demand and, and gas demand to recover and to recover up to, to pre-COVID levels by about 2022. Um, but in the long term, we certainly expect our oil demand to peak and we believe that the transition towards greener energy uh, will only gather momentum. And a lot of what people have seen during this coronavirus crisis, particularly in Europe, if not quite so much in the rest of the world, will really push us towards uh, the public and the private sectors working together towards uh, a much greener future as fast as possible. OK, let's come back to coal, to oil and look more closely at that in a moment. But Marco, it's interesting that while yesterday in the UK we didn't burn any coal to generate electricity, um, wind and solar combined accounted for less than nuclear and gas provided several times uh, more electricity than wind. So what's the path you see going forwards out of the COVID crisis? Well, first of all, thank you, uh, Peter and Hermina Gilda and Al. Nice to be here together and thanks to everyone listening. Um, if we step back and, and look at what the world was thinking pre-COVID, and we, we look at 2040, and I think BP and Equinor and SNAM, I think we all more or less agree. The global outlook was uh, to have still in 2040 around uh, between 25 and 30% gas, around 25% oil, and around 20% coal, and the remaining 25% equally split between nuclear, hydro, and new renewables. So this was a kind of the global outlook. Um, now, whether oil is peaking, I think there's no question. 
the old view, old, I mean, pre-COVID view was that oil would peak somewhat in the 20s and then plateau kind of into the 30s and 40s to reach that kind of 25% number. Now, I think um, COVID has some permanent changes. I think some of us, including myself, will use more Wi-Fi and less travel uh, to work. And I think this is a permanent feature. So I expect there will be some downward pressure uh, on oil because oil is still mainly used for travel. And that means bringing forward that peak and maybe steepening that plateau. Uh, as we think about gas and nuclear and coal, uh, certainly COVID has had an impact on air quality even greater than on CO2. And we've seen cleaner air, we've breathed cleaner air. Some, some scientists also argue that uh, the particulates uh, that create smog and create dirty air have, have accelerated uh, COVID and some studies show a, a strong correlation, certainly here in Lombardy between, uh, between pollution and kind of health, uh, lung-related lung health issues. So I think there will be a great, great push for cleaner air as well as addressing CO2. Timmermans, as Ermenegildas said, certainly intends to use the European Green Deal as a sort of a Marshall Plan, and we'll talk later about hydrogen and how that pans into it. Uh, but the bottom line remains that renewables are, are tough to balance, and so I expect, compared to those numbers I was giving before, kind of a quarter um, oil, a quarter gas, a quarter coal, and a quarter everything else, I think oil and coal will shrink faster uh, because of places like Europe pushing much harder on the on the uh, renewables and on the energy transition. And I think it's a golden era for natural gas, which is necessary to balance out uh, the renewables. Now, nuclear is, is very much a kind of country-specific kind of policy question. You see the UK going long nuclear, you see Germany wanting and trying, and, uh, and still the jury's out as to how they will manage to phase out coal and nuclear at the same time. So I think coal, nuclear is a country-specific issue. Coal is a function of, of the seriousness of, of global um, CO2 efforts, and gas is really there to, to help the growth of renewables and to balance the system. Uh, my last consideration on the kind of the macro picture is that some, some newspapers, including some very prestigious newspapers, have had headlines in recent days saying, notwithstanding COVID, uh, the, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere continues to rise. Well, what a surprise. I mean, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, it's like the amount of water we have in a bathtub. And the tap is never going to be turned off completely, even with COVID, with the numbers that Al said. The tap is reduced or has been reduced for a, a limited period of time, but the tap is still going on. And people still confuse CO2 as if there's an amount that we can reduce and then live happily. CO2 is like uh, living with, with a bathtub that's almost filled to the top. And if it's not enough to reduce the amount of water going into the bathtub. We also need to think about ways to, to take water out uh, before it starts filling over. Okay, so in your view, COVID has definitely made us more aware of the fragility of our ecosystem. It's given us an appetite for clean air. Um, and therefore, in your view, permanently wary of, uh, of, of hydrocarbons. It, against that statement, let's look deeper at oil. Um, uh, uh, Al, I was struck by BP's 
lively new CEO, Bernard Looney, saying to the FT the other week that he, he wouldn't write off the proposition that we have now already reached peak demand for oil, a similar view to your own. That was something previously expected in the 2030s, uh, and that the oil industry may be about to go X growth. Is that your view? Do you, do you agree with Bernard? Well, I, I think you know, what Bernard said was, we don't know. Could oil have peaked? Possibly. Could it continue to grow? Very possibly. And I think certainly we in Equinor expect it to grow, um, certainly from where it is today, we expect it to grow towards the late 2020s in terms of peak demand. And that's really driven by the world outside Europe and the world outside the US, the, the non-OECD, where we, we simply don't see that um, because of coronas, people have given up on their, their desires to have air conditioning, uh, their desires to drive their own car. So we, we do see oil demand continuing to, to grow, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that will see it uh, peak and then, uh, and then reduce over time. And I think um, what we're already looking at is uh, how fast we need to grow alternatives in order to replace the, the, the oil and the gas. And I'll, I'll give you an example just from Europe where if we were going to replace um, all the oil and all the gas in Europe right now, um, we would need 500 um, giant wind farms, brand new wind farms to do that. We're building the largest wind farm in Europe at the moment uh, called Dogger Bank, in fact, the largest wind farm in the world called Dogger Bank, would need 500 of those to, uh, to replace oil and gas in Europe alone. So we shouldn't underestimate the, the challenge of doing that. Mm. Bernard also said that it is investors, as much as uh, civil society, who are stepping up pressure on oil majors like your own to embrace uh, climate change policies. I mean, is this true in, in, in your experience of your uh, investors? And are these investors going to dig deep into their pockets to meet the costs of the energy transition? We certainly see investors far more interested in this than they've ever been before. We used to talk in, in Equinor about our investors and then our ESG investors. Um, and, and now all of our investors are, are ESG investors. I think um, though our, our investors first and foremost do demand that we're a healthy business and one that continues to grow in value. And, and it's a matter of uh, value and values as far as they're concerned. Marco, do you agree? Do you, in view of what Al has just said, do you think investment in dirty oil and gas projects uh, is now a thing of the past? You have two factors at play. You have this big question that we're trying to address, uh, which is hard to, to point down uh, as to when it peaks. And, and the, the second after it peaks, then you're in an ex-growth sector. And so by definition, you lose a lot of appetite uh, from, from certain categories of investors. And then there's this secular trend, this underlying trend of ESG, which is coupled with another trend of passive investment. And so as you move towards index investments and as you move towards greater appetite for ESG indices, and I, I, I see this uh, in, in my role at Standard & Poor's where I'm on the board, there is going to be a big, big, um, you know, an even greater pressure than with active management because an active management can 
can give you the benefit of the big effort you're putting into converting companies like ours from fossil to renewable and there's a qualitative discussion and and you can you can work around that when you move to passive investors that are getting a big big share of the total investment market uh, they simply have to tick that esg box and they will look at how much co2 you emit they will look at how fast you can reduce it and there's the point is approaching where you begin to lose investors even if you're putting a great effort and investing great money um, so i think it's challenging days ahead for companies that don't really make esg uh, a center uh, part of their strategy. When it comes to liquidity available for ESG type investments, uh, then I think it's a different story. I think COVID will mean a very low green deal are gonna, are gonna come up also in, in outside of Europe. And there's a lot of liquidity out there. And a lot of these investments as Ermin Gilda pointed out, actually do have a positive return. So I think the challenge, yeah. Let me come come on to re renewables uh, in a moment, but just on the ESG, is there a widening gap on ESG and energy transition between European and American oil majors? Is ESG simply a different and bigger force in Europe, uh, both for corporates and investors than it is in the United States? I think that was the case in 2019 and 2018. And I think Europe, a lot of European companies have this sense of purpose more embedded in their DNA and, and some of their founders and a bit further from the kind of quarterly just for profit uh, mentality that you have more of in the US. I think that is changing. The US is, is uh, accelerating quickly on its ESG momentum. And that is driven by the rating agencies that will very soon start coming out with ESG ratings. And so each company will have its kind of rating for their bonds and then an ESG scorecard that will just give them a score. Investors are going to are going to look at that uh, as as well as as a normal rating. So I think it's a, it's really an accelerating trend in the U.S. and the gap will close. Al, do you do you share that view? Um, bro broadly, um, yes. I, I think um, certainly you see a difference between the uh, what would what would have been called the oil majors in the U.S. and the oil majors in Europe in terms of their appetite for renewable investments. I think it's very clear that uh, the European majors are, are pivoting more to renewables than the American oil and gas companies. But I think the, the, there is a concerted effort on climate, as shown by the, um, by the OGCI, the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, of which American and European companies are, are members. I think the bigger and more challenging gap is beyond the US and, and Europe where there's going to be a, a tremendous effort needed in order to bring the rest of the world along with this. And we should remember that the, um, all the majors, all the US and European majors together, only produce a small fraction of the world's oil and gas. Mm. Okay, let, let's turn our attention to renewables uh, and look uh, more deeply at those. I mean, the falling cost of renewables has been one of the big energy stories of recent years. Uh, a decade ago in government, we were looking at prospective costs for UK offshore wind of £150 per megawatt hour. Now there is a prospect of the cost being literally just a third uh, of that. So I want to ask both of you, Marco, perhaps you first, does this mean that the policy paradigm for European decarbonisation is going to be electrification of most things plus electricity 
from, from renewables. Is that the paradigm? That, well, that definitely was the paradigm and the story was full electrification, trying to electrify everything. And um, as, the, as the majors uh, were dealing with the rising market for oil and gas outside of Europe, the, the kind of the debate was really governed by the electricity utilities that pushed in the last four years for an increasingly aggressive effort to, um, to electrify everything. I think the, the, the tide has changed uh, last year. Um, I'm also the president of Gas Naturally trying to, to make a counter argument to say that you can electrify up to a point. And if you take IRENA that was mentioned before, the Renewable Energy Association, who by definition are the most uh, are, uh, ambitious and the strongest advocates for full electrification, they will admit that it's hard to think of a world that goes beyond 50% electrification. Um, and that has to do with the so-called hard to abate sectors with the much greater cost of transporting electricity than transporting molecules, with, which is about 20 times more expensive over long distances. With the cost of storing electricity over the cost of storing molecules, you can store natural gas for five euros and you need 200 euros per megawatt hour to store electricity. And so for heating, for instance, where you have big seasonal swings, it's very hard to electrify that part of the sector. So if we take ARENA's numbers, uh, which I think are still on the aggressive side, and you think that 50% can be electrified in terms of final end use, that is still going to require the trillions that Hermenegilda highlighted. Uh, just to give you a sense, National Grid thinks that in the UK to electrify heating, you need to redo 25,000 homes per week. And the cost of that uh, refurbishment is around two to 300, 300 pounds per, per uh, square meter. So trillions of, of, of pounds of, of refurbishment. Um, uh, you st you're still left with the, with a 50% of molecules. And I think the effort of companies like ours and ours are to, to green as much of those molecules as we can. We can do that with CCS. Uh, we can do that with biomethane. We can do that with hydrogen. So I think we have to put all options on the table. Um, renewable energy, as you mentioned, is becoming a lot cheaper. Uh, but the problem with renewable energy has never been the cost of renewable themselves. They're still a, a lot cheaper than nuclear today in the UK. Uh, but why do you do nuclear? Because you need base load that's available even when you don't have wind and you don't have sun. Uh, and so there's going to be a combination of base load energy, a combination of, of definitely renewables coming into our homes directly, but a big role to play uh, for the renewable molecules that we're going to cater for that 50% that you really cannot electrify no matter what the costs of renewables are. Okay. Al, I, again, I want to know your view of, of, of what new paradigm is emerging. And by the way, could I just say to uh, those who are listening, um, please take advantage of the, uh, the Q&A. Uh, please submit any questions or points you want to make that, or that you want me to take up with Marco and, and Al. Uh, don't hold back. Uh, please go ahead. But Al, I mean, do you believe that renewables are going to develop in the way that uh, Marco has described? Do you have a more qualified view? And do you think that renewables are going to be the only energy source actually growing this year? Well, I think uh, your, your, your statistics on the costs of wind energy coming down um, tell a, an amazing story. 
and uh, the bids we were able to put in for, for the wind sector um, and for new wind farms just last year uh, were, were far more aggressive bids than we would ever dared have imagined just a few years ago. I think Marco is right though on, on a couple of things. Firstly, that there's a whole use of energy that is hard to shift um, to power. And we should remember that power electricity only makes up around 20% of global energy demand at the moment. And uh, there are sources of power, uh, of heat, energy for heat and, um, and fuel that we'll need to find other ways uh, of addressing. I, I also think Marco's right to identify the key issue here now as intermittency. In many places around the world, renewables are by far the cheapest cost of new power. But, but the example you highlighted, Peter, of, uh, of the UK's um, power sources is a really good one. And that is that yesterday in the UK, it was pretty cloudy and there wasn't much wind and the, the power that came from wind power was negligible. Um, here we are today in the last uh, few hours, uh, we're currently getting twice as much power from wind as we are from nuclear and from gas. So that shows the problem we've got here, which is one of intermittency. And as governments look to provide reliable power for their populations and for their industry, um, they need to avoid power cuts. And the key here is that we don't have a situation where batteries can store enough power, either in terms of capacity or price, to, um, to make up for the intermittency of renewables, which is why we remain and retain the need to have uh, natural gas um, as the, um, as, uh, along with a few other sources. Um, with as, as the stable base load to uh, to keep things going when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing. Let, let me come to that in a moment. I just want to be clear. I mean, you, 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 renewables are the cheapest, but the but nonetheless, the transition that we're talking about is going to cost trillions. In, in your view, can renewables access literally any money or any capital? Or, or any debt they need? Is that the uh, position of the markets, uh, Al? I think that's a really interesting question. And um, certainly at the moment, um, the, uh, a number of firms working on renewable energy have done very well. There's an awful lot of money coming in. Um, there's an awful lot of money coming in from um, funds that want to invest in infrastructure, and even more money coming in from funds that want to invest in, um, in ESG compliant green products. But what that doesn't guarantee is that, um, that wind and solar and other renewables projects will make great profits. And that's where we and other um, energy companies really have to prove uh, what we can do. Traditionally, we've made high rates of return from oil and gas and the jury is still out as to whether we can make those returns on, on renewables. We're hopeful that we are. We in Equinor are targeting 6 to 10% rates of return. But uh, for, the, for our entire industry, the, the source of debt and the source of funding is not the problem. The challenge is, can we reliably make good returns going forward that justify long-term investments? Okay. And just before we move on to hydrogen, where I know many people are now uh, flagging its importance, uh, Marco, where does this leave natural gas and new nuclear? Um, 
Look, I, th I think uh, before before talking about nuclear on, on this point of, of capital, I think it's important just to look at the maths because what Al said, if they're willing to, to take a 6% return on a renewable project, uh, which makes sense because a renewable project is a lot more predictable. Even if the wind is intermittent, you know on average in, in a specific region what the annual amount of wind is and what you, can, you know with great precision what the sun amount of sun is. And you, you know it's kind of a, a very deterministic business you're investing in. It's an incredibly predictable business, which is very different from, from kind of oil and gas and natural resources where you're drilling and you need to find it and then you have reservoir risks. And, and because of what we said earlier on the availability of debt as well, and because you can put much more debt onto renewables, uh, we issued yesterday a bond, a transition bond, so kind of a renewable energy bond, a 10-year bond at a coupon of 0.8%. So you can kind of almost get free debt for these types of investments. So you can put, say you can put 70% debt, 60% debt at 0.8% then that 6% can really go down to maybe 3 or 4%. And if you're looking at an upstream investment with all the decommissioning costs and the question about peak oil, you may be looking at a 10 to 15% return that you actually want for a greenfield investment. So you can almost get kind of 10 times more um, capital availability for, for these types of, of, of transitions. And, and so that, um, that brings me to your question with gas and nuclear. For the existing infrastructure, I think they will they will work a lot where they will be allowed to work a lot. And I think in Germany, as they phase out nuclear, they are going to have to replace a lot of that nuclear with gas. And in Italy, as we phase out coal, a lot of the coal will be phased out with, uh, with new gas as well as new renewables. Uh, when you think about nuclear, new build nuclear, I think it's very challenging. In the UK, the Hinkley point, cost is about 94, 93, something around that uh, year, uh, pounds uh, per megawatt hour. That's more than the cost of, of green hydrogen today made from solar. And it doesn't have the benefit of hydrogen's um, flexibility because nuclear is baseload. So I think uh, with today's expensive uh, large scale, uh, nuclear is just gonna be priced out of the market by renewables and gas. Okay, let's move on to hydrogen because governments are publishing hydrogen strategies and the European Commission is launching its own uh, strategy in a few weeks. But we have been here before with hydrogen, you know, back in 2003, uh, Jeremy Rifkin in his book, The Hydrogen Economy, claimed hydrogen would imminently spawn a new economic revolution. Now, the reality turned out to be rather more uh, prosaic. 17 years later, I think, if I'm not mistaken, hydrogen accounts for about 1% uh, of global uh, energy. Um, Marco, you're an author uh, on this subject. Uh, so my question to you, before I come to Al, who I know is also interested in the potential of hydrogen. Uh, Marco, second time round, is hydrogen really going to be the game changer? And if so, why do you think? Well, in my chapter, in my book, I actually have a chapter called Third Time Lucky. So it's not the second time round, because the first time round was way back uh, when we had hydrogen in our cities. It was called city gas. And we had hydrogen as the most promising uh, source of energy in, in, in Jules Verne's book, The Mysterious Island. And so scientists, as, as the Industrial Revolution started, 
always thought hydrogen was going to be the solution. Then what happened is um, essentially Churchill decided to, the, the Navy when he was uh, first admiral, had to switch to oil to be competitive with the German uh, ships and faster than the German ships. And that really triggered the whole oil revolution, which made hydrogen a lot more expensive. And so we had this big hundred years of, of oil and oil will peak at some point. The second time, as you mentioned, was 2002, 2003. Um, I was working in NL at the time and I was head of strategy there. And I went to a hydrogen conference in uh, Japan for 10 days, all in Japanese. And I came back thinking madness. I mean, this is a beautiful solution, but uh, the, the idea at the time was to make it from nuclear and to put it into people's cars. And it was costing 30 to 40 times more than oil. So I'm like, brilliant technology, but it's never going to work. And my mindset stayed there until very recently, until two and a half years ago, when my team basically showed me the new maths of hydrogen, incorporating some of the recent, uh, what were recent at the time, uh, solar auctions, uh, and, and the combination of the cost of solar coming down and the cost of electrolyzers, <clears throat> which is a big tank that you need uh, to make hydrogen from solar, and you can do the same from wind as well. The costs have come down so dramatically, so unexpectedly fast, that if you simply do the maths, you see that hydrogen now costs twice uh, the price of oil. And here we're talking about green hydrogen or even blue hydrogen. Then, of course, you have gray hydrogen, which is the, the one that's emitting a CO2, which is already a huge market. It's a $100 billion market today. But if we talk about green and blue hydrogen, we think that in, uh, and, and, and there's a great piece today on the Times that says the same, uh, in the next five years, we can see hydrogen made from solar uh, at the same price point as uh, diesel and petrol uh, for, for transport. That's the bottom line. So it's technology driven. We're in a completely different space than we were in 2003 and certainly than we were in the 18th century. Okay, quick question has come in from uh, uh, Charlotte Morgan at Linklaters uh, for Al. Do you see the UK's new policy of CCUS providing an efficient bridge to a hydrogen economy? Uh, there's an active debate, she says, around the need for blue hydrogen in the first instance to create sufficient hydrogen to create a sustainable market and an energy switch. How do you see this debate over blue hydrogen, uh, over green hydrogen? I mean, the UK initial position over the EU policy direction. Do you see the big wind farms will bring forward proposals to use excess wind generation for green hydrogen? Al. So I, I think in, in the UK, we are seeing very encouraging signs that, um, that hydrogen projects and CCUS projects are going to be able to move forward. We're doing one at Humberside and, and one at Teesside currently. Um, I think we have to start off with, with the costs. As Marco said, the, the costs of hydrogen are coming down. Right now, as we see it on our projects, um, blue hydrogen, that's hydrogen made from methane, uh, where the carbon dioxide is, is buried under the, the sea in, in, in reservoirs. Um, that costs about twice as much as methane, so normal natural gas. And green hydrogen, that's hydrogen which is made from electrolysis, costs twice as much again. Now, that, that will change over time, but it certainly says that um, we believe that the place to start is, is blue hydrogen. And it's a bit like, you know, sitting in 1990, and, um, and you've got a record player, 
and uh, and and do you wait for um, streaming music or or do you buy uh, a, a CD in in the in the meantime? And um, and we see it a little bit like that. That um, blue hydrogen uh, is is a great solution for the transition to what will eventually become green hydrogen. But it's a great way of getting there because all the infrastructure is is in place. And I very like Mark. I very much like Marco's. Um, memory of, uh, of town gas, city gas, because one of the great things about hydrogen is we have proved it as a fuel that can go safely down pipelines to people's homes. And, and it was what the UK, the US relied on long before natural gas uh, came onto, onto the scene. So yes, we're hopeful. But the final point I'll, I'll leave you with is um, we should remember that um, even blue hydrogen at the moment costs twice as much as methane to, to provide to industry and to provide to people's homes. And we've got to figure out where that cost gets paid. And, and as we come out of coronavirus, it seems to me unlikely that consumers will want to pay twice as much for hydrogen as they have done for methane. Um, it seems unlikely that companies will have enough money to invest in uh, projects that uh, don't make returns um, and it's going to be a challenge for governments to put subsidies into um, blue hydrogen into carbon capture and storage into green hydrogen in order to do that at a time when funds are going to be relatively short so of course the answer is that those three groups consumers governments and companies will all have to work together in order to move these projects forward but overall I'm, I'm optimistic um, certainly as far as Europe is concerned with the signals we're getting out of Brussels, uh, Germany and, and their reports over the last 24 hours there on their plans. Uh, Oslo uh, moving forward with Europe's largest um, carbon capture and storage project, uh, Northern Lights, and, uh, and not least in London, where Kwasi Kwarteng and Alok Sharma uh, are really setting a, a high degree of ambition on this front. Al, can I just ask you quickly, does Germany's zero nuclear policy depend on the Nord Stream 2 gas supply from Russia, somebody is asking, in case the pipeline gas project becomes unavailable uh, because of political reasons, do you think Germany will continue nuclear? Um, I, I, I think that um, what you're talking to there is, is a pretty complex energy balance. Um, we're not obviously part of Nord Stream, but it looks like it's going to come on stream uh, fairly soon. and, and the advantage of pipelines is traditionally they've been more reliable than, um, than, than ships or any other form of transportation to bring reliable natural gas in. I think there's enough sources of pipelines and natural gas um, in Europe and particularly in Germany that takes such a hub position in Europe that uh, Germany should be confident that it's got enough potential sources of energy to, uh, to withstand uh, interruptions on any one particular route. Okay, last question, Marco, uh, 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 to you. Um, from Alex Barnes, who says, the conditions facing hydrogen today are very different from those facing natural gas when the current framework for natural gas was developed. Natural gas was a mature, profitable industry with plenty of supply, demand, and infrastructure. What do you think now the EU should do uh, to encourage development of hydrogen. Where do you think the EU goes next? 
I think that's a very fair point to uh, when you think about the UK natural gas market, because the UK was a latecomer in the 90s with the discoveries in the North, in the North Sea. If you think about what um, the Dutch and the Russians and the Algerians did in the 70s, uh, the gas, natural gas market didn't exist. And that's what we did uh, as SNAM in, uh, in Italy in the, in the 50s and 60s. E and I discovered gas instead of oil, and instead of leaving it in the ground as people did. Uh, the effort was to go and aggregate demand clusters and build very expensive infrastructure to bring them this uh, this uh, this natural gas. So I think we we have actually lessons to learn from what we did, rediscover that pioneering spirit, and we're doing that. And so it's going to be a combination of creating clusters mainly around ports, and I think Holland is is going to be a good starting point for Europe, uh, and and create aggregated aggregated demand where you can go in and justify building a dedicated infrastructure. We also believe that hydrogen can be blended in with natural gas, exactly like Al said, like we did. Uh, city gas was mixtures of different gases. We've tested that you can do this blending safely. We've, we've delivered a blend of hydrogen and natural gas to uh, two uh, customers of ours in Italy. Uh, it was a 10% blend. We think we can go up to 20% very soon. And, and so we think we need to start, uh, as Al said, with the low-hanging fruits with the cheaper versions of hydrogen, which is a blue hydrogen, build markets, build demand, aggregate demand, and then, and then looking at, um, at, at having the best cost solutions work. And it's gonna be a combination of blue hydrogen coming from Norway and Russia, um, green hydrogen coming from Dogger Bank and other uh, wind projects, and um, solar green hydrogen coming from uh, Southern Europe and indeed from, from North Africa. All this is very well reflected in the leaked EU uh, hydrogen policy papers, is very well reflected in the German uh, policy document that came out this morning, and in the Portuguese hydrogen strategy that came out. So I think the countries are working in the same direction. I think we're getting there. If you look at uh, Nikola, it's a, a company that makes hydrogen trucks. It's a kind of a Tesla equivalent. It was worth $2 billion uh, six months ago, now it's worth $17 billion. Yesterday it was listed on, on NASDAQ following a, a merger. So I think the, the markets are moving incredibly quickly. Uh, two years ago, there were few of us advocating this. Uh, I think now is becoming uh, mainstream and it's kind of happening. Okay. Last, two quick answers from both of you to the last question uh, from Patrick Agar. He says the hybrid future that you both describe renewable electricity plus natural gas plus hydrogen appears more nuanced than the current common binary approach to ESG, zero carbon or not at all. Given the huge capital amounts required, do you think a more nuanced view of ESG will have to emerge that focuses on carbon reduction more than just renewables stroke zero carbon? Al? Yes, I, I think um, we need to focus on not just what our company's doing in order to uh, provide zero carbon power, but also what are they doing to provide oil in the lowest carbon manner possible? What are they doing to provide gas, natural gas, in the lowest emissions manner possible? And I hope as well that governments um, will set very ambitious targets for emissions reductions and for carbon dioxide 
but will give space to industry and businesses in order to find the right solutions to get there. Marco, can you give your response to that, but also answer quickly this last, last question. Do you see batteries or other storage solutions as being capable of providing sufficient power shortage uh, storage uh, to deal with the intermittency of variable renewables by 2030? So on, on the first question, I fully agree uh, with Al and with the, with the uh, implicit uh, form of the question. There needs to be uh, a palette of opportunities, hybrid models. There needs to be CO2 uh, cost curves. And so if, if um, I start with the lower hanging fruits, I get more bang for the buck, I can really begin to reduce these emissions fast instead of fo focusing on a fully decarbonized model that requires uh, technologies that aren't available today. Um, the um, CO2 abatement curve is something that no one talks about. We need to get consumers involved. We need to uh, move away from gigatons of CO2 that no one is familiar with to talking like we do for calories, like we do for grams or kilos when we weigh stuff. We need to think about our own carbon footprint. We need to get consumer companies involved. We need to have when we buy a laptop or an iPhone, we need to know how many kilos of CO2 went into making it, and we need to hold companies accountable to reduce their own footprint. And they can do that by paying CO2 prices, and you quickly get to a point where planting a tree is more efficient than, than building a, a huge infrastructure to power uh, five, five electric cars in the far remote area. Uh, in terms of batteries, that is really the point and the problem. I'm now looking at my phone. When my phone will last a week, we will have solved the battery problem. And it will be Apple or Samsung. It will be one of these guys solving it. Uh, but my phone today lasts less than my phone 10 years ago. And, and the Duracell I buy at the grocery store is exactly the same as I, I could buy when I was a kid in the 80s. And, and so the, the, the you know, costs have come down, but batteries are only very short-term solutions. So they can cater for the, you know, the few hours when there's no sun or no wind but they're not going to be able to address structural seasonality we have and the structural need we have to store huge amounts of energies for industry and for heating and for other uses. Marco, uh, Al, thank you very much indeed for giving us a tremendously interesting and insightful conversation uh, this afternoon. Uh, Amene Gilda, thank you very much indeed for preparing it and, uh, and thanks to your all your colleagues at the Global Council team in, in Brussels. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com, and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. <laughs>